Let's pray together. God of grace, we are thankful for this uh, wonderful song that uh, Rob just read of your promises and your desires for us. We thank you for your, that you are a God of grace. Um, that we thank you that when we were lost, you found us. And when we were ashamed, you forgave us. That you are, have nailed our accusations against us on the cross. And uh, they never come back to haunt us. Father, we ask that you this morning that you give us a clear uh, conviction of the reality of your power this morning. We ask that you give us the grace to see beyond our own time and our own place and to understand more about your reality, your purposes, and your desires for us as individuals, for us as a fellowship, and for us as part of your church. Father, the needs of our bodies are real, and we ask you to meet them. Those who are ill among our fellowship, especially we lift those up, the people we love that we know are suffering, we pray for them. But Father, also just as real as those needs are, are also the, real, the needs that are real in our souls. And so, Father, we seek your truth. We ask that you give us, uh, show us your, your, um, what is honorable and your meekness and your humility and, and purpose and meaning and forgiveness and grace and love. We ask that you make those things real in our lives. We ask that you, uh, that you empower us with your Holy Spirit, uh, your power for us to lay hold of your truth, even when it feels and sounds uncomfortable. And for this power, for this sense that we thank you for this power, and we thank you for this uh, sense of home that we find in you. We thank you for the restlessness in our hearts that makes us long for you. We thank you for the invasion of the Holy Spirit into our souls. We thank you for human love and goodness that speaks to us about you. And we thank you for the glory that has been shown in the babe that was born 2,000 years ago in Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you for what he has shown us. And so, Father, we're asking that you make us wise and brave and graceful as we seek to represent you and participate in what you want to do in our lives. And we ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. We are hitting Isaiah chapter 40, the first of the, uh, what is called the servant songs. And uh, this wonderful poem of Isaiah 40 to 55. If, uh, if you were to ask me, uh, uh, Tommy, why don't you, can you tell us why you do this every Sunday? why you get up and preach every Sunday. And if I had to sum it up just in one sentence of why I do this, it's because I want to build confidence. I want to build your confidence and my confidence in the risen Savior. Amen. I want to build confidence in the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the, the Holy One. Jesus, the servant, as Isaiah calls him. I want to build confidence, your confidence and my confidence in the Savior. That's what I hope to do. And if we really understand the message of Jesus, what he says, his stories, his teaching, his preaching, 
his descriptions, his, his parables, if we want to understand what he says and we want to understand what the Bible says about Jesus, then we have to, then that, if we really clearly understand that, then it will truly be good news for us. It will sound like good news. We will listen to his instructions and say, these are the best instructions I've ever heard in my life. And we need to see Jesus as, this, as, as to put him flat-footed with everybody else who tries to tell us the best way to live. And what I mean by that is that we don't just put him in this separate category. Okay, he came uh, to die, and that was nice, and that's it. And then I'm going to look at other people to tell me how to live. That's not how it works. That's not really a good news. And I know we tend to do that. And I was just... And the reason I brought that up, I was just talking with a friend this week uh, who's no, really, no longer really involved in a church or anything, but he says he went to a Christmas service and they basically said Jesus was just born to die. And there's truth in that. There's truth in that, but it's, it's incredibly incomplete. Amen. He didn't just come just to die. He didn't, we don't have him in this separate category over here. Jesus said... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am weak, I'm meek, sorry, I am meek and lowly at heart. Learn from me because I am meek and lowly at heart. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard a university professor say, learn from me because I'm meek and lowly at heart. <laughs> I've never heard Dr. Phil say that. <laughs> Come and learn from me because I'm meek and lowly at heart. What I'm saying here is that we've got to take at least, at least as seriously Jesus' teaching and Jesus' is showing his life at least as seriously as we take the advice columns we read in the newspaper or the philosophers we happen to read or the, the uh, self-help books that we find at the bookstore. In fact, of course, I would say we take him first and foremost. Amen. This is who we learn from. He says, take my yoke upon me, upon yourself, and learn from me because I am meek and lowly at heart. And we usually don't put those two things together. We don't see what that's all about. Well, Isaiah is telling us about what God is doing, this mystery that God is doing, this new creation, this new covenant that he is, he is, he is doing. And and in this one big, big psalm, this one big poem from 40 to 55, he's describing this mystery of what he's going to be doing in our lives and in our hearts and what he wants to do in our, in our ministry and in our lives. And it's a mystery. We kind of don't, don't really get it. And he says in, in the chapter we're going to be looking at, he says, these things that I'm going to bring forth, these things that are yet to spring forth, I'm telling you about them right now. And so we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 42 because this is the first of the, of the servant songs in Isaiah. There's four of them. And we're not going to really look very, very carefully at, at chapter 41. Uh, that's what leads up to it. But I do need to give you a little bit of background because it is important that we have this context of 41 before we launch into 42, chapter 42. And in 41 is when we first see the word servant that Isaiah uses, and he just uses it to describe Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, that these are my servant. He is my servant. He is my servant. These are my servants. And then he goes on to talk about how 
what God is going to be doing, that he's going to do this new creation and, and he's going to, everything, he, he will be victorious eventually. And he uses a lot of the pictures from the wilderness and the Exodus story, but he says this is what the wilderness is, but soon it's going to flourish. And there are going to be trees that will provide shade and trees that will even provide food and, and it will just, the wilderness will flourish. And then he turns his attention, he directs his attack on, his, on, on the, the constant enemy in the book of Isaiah, and that is idolatry. And he attacks the idols, and he says, he says you know, you, you're, you've suffered because you've worshipped these idols, and yet things have still gone poorly for you. And what is your solution? Build better idols. <laughs> he tells them, yeah, I'm going to build better idols. And, he, and, and God is saying, how stupid is that? He said, let's get serious here. Let's, 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 let's pull this into a, a court case. And he tells the idols, he says, you tell us. Tell us what, what has happened before. And they don't. Silence. He says, well, tell us what's going to happen. Crickets, right? And then he says, well, at least do something good. Or do something bad. Do anything just to show us that you're alive. And there's nothing. And he says, this is my point. These things are dead. And, and, you know, in the 21st century, we look at these statues and we just, how silly, you know, that they would put all their faith in these, in these sculptures and in these statues. And just because they have gold and pretty chains and they're, and they're nice to look at, you know, how silly is that? But we're just as idolatrous as they are. We just didn't give them fancy names like Aphrodite or Moloch or... Ashereth or Baal. We didn't give them those names. We call them different things like money, sex, and power. And I would throw in fame in there. And he says, there's still idolatry. It's still, they're still idols because you cede your authority to them. You give, them their, you give them their authority and then they require a lot from you. And where you can't even get out and sure enough, you become enslaved. Whatever it is. Whatever it is we're pursuing to make us happy, to find meaning, to find purpose, we, that, that is our life. That becomes our idol. And it, can be, and it can be good things. But then we become enslaved to it. And Dallas Willard says, when you're talking with someone like that or where they're trying to find, uh, find uh, happiness, he says, I always ask them, well, uh, what if you put that on your tombstone? And he said, that kind of puts things in perspective. Here lies Mary. She had great teeth. Or here comes, you know, here's, here's, here's Joe, and, and he, uh, he, he's lost 50 pounds or whatever, or he, you know, bulked up. Not that there's anything wrong with exercising, I'm okay. But you get my point, that these things are just going to make us happy. Whatever's going to make us happy, and you put that on a tombstone, you go, yeah, that's really not that, that important. And so he's laying the groundwork for what he's going to introduce to us in chapter 42, the servant, the servant who is meek and lowly at heart. And we find out that God does things much differently. He does, much, he does things very, very differently than what we would do them, the way we would do them. He does them as a, as a servant who is meek and lowly at heart. So let's, uh, let's look at the chapter, chapter 42. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to read with me. He says, here is my chapter 42, Isaiah. And, and we're just going to do the first nine verses. It's really, really difficult to say when this first song ends. I, I tend to believe that it ends at nine. 
And then the 10, verse 10 is this command to sing praises to God. So I, I'm going to go with that, that I think it's, it kind of ends this first song ends at verse 9. And it starts off, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He won't cry out. He won't raise his voice. He won't make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed, he won't break. A, a dimly lit wick, he's not going to snuff out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint. He will not be crushed until he brings forth justice. The coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and he stretched them out. The one who spread out the earth and all that comes forth. And he says, who, one who gives breath to the people upon it and the one who, who gives his spirit to those who walk on it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people to be a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to take the prisoners out of the dungeon, from prisons to draw those who are sitting in darkness. I have given you as a covenant to the nations, he says. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will give my glory to no one, and to no other will my praises be. You see, I, have, I, I see the former things that have come to pass, and the new things that I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then in verse 10, he says, sing praises to the Lord. This is a wonderful, wonderful passage, but it's, it's, we have to understand that, that he's taken us in sort of a, a zoom lens sort of approach. So with this first psalm, this first psalm of, or song of the servant, it's kind of this wide-angle approach. And we go, well, who is this servant that he's talking about? Well, if you were just reading this for the first time, you would kind of assume that they were he was talking about the descendants of Abraham, Israel, that that's what you would assume. And so you kind of had this broad picture uh, of Israel as the servant in chapter 42. But then if you get to the end of chapter 3, we have something that's really a problem. We have something that's puzzling. Because at the end of the chapter, which we're not going to really read through, just, but at the end of the chapter, he describes that Israel has got its own problems that they have been the prey of hunters, that they have been robbed, and they have been sacked. And in fact, he goes on to say, but Israel has, they're suffering from the same disease as everybody else, and they're suffering from the same problem. And so as if Isaiah is saying, you want to know who this servant is, you've got to keep reading and sure enough, he takes this wide-angle lens of the servant in chapter 42, and each one, he narrows it down, he narrows it down, he narrows it down. And it still is Israel, but it's one individual of Israel. It is the ideal Israelite who is the servant. And then, of course, we know him as Jesus of Nazareth. And something that I, I just picked up this week, and you know, I never really realized this, but it's really strange. I was... Doing the, preparing Isaiah in these last few weeks, and particularly Isaiah chapter 42. But in my own kind of morning time, I've been going through the book of John. And I am now convinced that John was totally immersed in the book of Isaiah. I mean, I'm seeing these trends, these themes repeat in the book of John over and over and over again. And I'm going, John 
was an Isaiah scholar. I'm convinced that those two books need to be read together. And this servant that we see in, in Isaiah 42 and on into 52 and 53 is, is laid out for us in John. And John is describing this. And so he immediately begins in the first four verses, the servant is invested with a divine approval. He is, he is divinely approved. He is, the, he is the chosen one. And God says, I will uphold him. I will give him the strength. It's the same word that, they, that he uses when a king wants to grab hold of the scepter. He holds on tight because that's where his power is. Well, Isaiah is saying here that Yahweh is upholding this servant in the same way that he would hold on to a scepter. He's giving his strength here. And he says, not only that, he says, I, uh, not only that, he is my chosen one and, and, my, and I delight in him. He makes me smile. I like the, what he is doing. He says, and I have put my spirit upon him. In other words, I have empowered him. I have energized him to do exactly what I want him to do. This servant is the very embodiment of the will of God. He is the embodiment of of the will of God, and deep, God deeply cares about him. And he says he's going to, this servant is going to put things right finally. He's going to bring and establish justice on the earth. And this justice, he says, is universal. It's for all the nations. It's not just for Israel. And, and it is permanent. It is certain. It is for sure. And he says this servant will not be crushed or faint until it is done. And the way that phrasing is, it's, it's almost, it's implying that, that he will be crushed and he will faint, but not until he establishes justice. And of course, we get to John, well, the Gospels, and we know that is true, that he is crushed, but he establishes justice. And this is something that God deeply cares about about putting things right. And we have this echo of justice inside our hearts. We talked a little bit about this in, in, the, in this last summer, that we want things to be right. We want things to be put right. We know we don't want injustice to have the last word. And God is saying injustice will not have the last word. We want things to be put right, except when our interest is involved. We want people to see justice unless I'm the one in court. But we got to get rid of this idea that, that this God is like, like some Zeus-type God with a lightning bolt ready to strike us when we mess up. What he's talking about here is he wants to put things right. And this is a message of comfort and courage for the Jews. And it's a message of comfort and courage for us. That we may not grasp it completely, but God will bring about perfect justice. But we know this is the thing we've been wanting. This is the thing we are longing for because God is on the side of the victim, always will be. And unless we understand that this is a central part of the gospel, this is not some appendage. This is not some, some, some extra that comes along with the gospel. This is very important in the heart of God. Three times, three times in these four verses, he says, he will establish justice. It's like this is the job description of the Savior. This is so important. And how will he do it? He will do it because he is lowly and meek. 
He says he's not going to raise his voice. It won't be made known in the streets. He will do it a different way. And if I were the Jews, I would be thinking, how is this going to work? How does he expect to get anybody's attention here if he's not going to yell? How is he going to get people to do what, they want, what he wants them to do without threats? Without force? How is he going to do that? Well, we've already seen it. How God pairs these things together of strength and gentleness. Of, of strength and rule and meekness and lowly at heart. We saw it in chapter 40. Remember that? He said that God will rule with the strength of his arm. And then the very next verse he says, he will gather his sheep. He will hold them next to his chest and he will lead them along the way. It's his strength with gentleness. And that's what we get in verses 5 through 9. He is also the divine power. The servant is the focal point of this whole thing. That he is the word. We talked about this last week, about the word being so powerful that that it actually does things. It's kind of wild. It's not just the pages we read on the scriptures. It is actually something that accomplished something, whether it's creation or whether it's the new creation. And we know that the word became flesh, according to John. And the word actually accomplishes it. And he says the, the person is the covenant. The person is the He says, I give the servant as a covenant to the people. It's not on the tablets. It's not on the scroll. It's not on a signed contract. It is in a person who is the covenant. And he says, this, this, this Savior, this servant, will bring light into the darkness. He will bring the prisoners out of dungeons. And out of the prisons of darkness, those who sit in the darkness, he will bring out. Whether the, whether the darkness is, is shame or addictions or guilt or abuse, or whether it's your prison is man-made, you're made, or someone else's made, he says he will call them out into the light. He will pull them out into the light. He will show us the way. He will reveal things that are in our heart. He will cause us to rethink our thinking, which the New Testament calls repentance. It's just rethinking our ideas. The ideas that we think that we respond on automatically, he says we rethink those things. And he says in contrast to the idols, he will do good. He will do good in the face of evil. And in contrast to those, those idols, God, he says that God tells us what he did in the past, how, his, how he was faithful in the past. And in contrast to those idols, he's going to tell us what he's going to do in the future. And these things that have yet to spring forth, he will tell them about them. This is it. This is the power. The power and meekness and loneliness. Now, we would have done it a little bit different. We would not do it this way. We will not do it this way. We would do it another way, but God does it somewhere else, some way else. And in chapter 41, he, one, of the, one of the main titles of Isaiah is the Holy One. And in chapter 41, right before this one, he uses that phrase, that, that title twice to introduce us to the servant who is the Holy One. And that caught my attention this week, so I did kind of a word study on that. And, uh, and kind of traced it through the scriptures. And it's used, I think, four times in the Psalms, the Holy One. It's used, I think, uh, twice in Proverbs, Jeremiah, 
and I can't remember the other prophet. There's another prophet that he uses it uh, just twice. And then Habakkuk uses it, uses it once. Hosea uses it once. Isaiah, 28 times. This is the Holy One, and the Holy One does things differently. This is the Holy One. Interesting enough, this is what Peter uses to call Jesus in the book of John. You remember the phrase, remember that time when he's feeding, feeding the multitudes and they say, and, G, and they, all these people leave after he talks about this, take, eating, my, eating my flesh and drinking my blood and all the people left and he asked the disciples, do you want to leave too? And Peter responds, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of life. You are the Holy One of God. And then Peter uses the phrase again on his speech in, in his sermon on, at Pentecost about the Holy One. And so I kind of looked at this and I thought, this is, what does this mean, the Holy One? Well, it means He is the perfect one. He is the perfect love. He is the one who is set apart, who does things differently. And so I kind of sum it up in, the, in two ways. The Holy One is right about everything, and I mean everything. Not just forgiveness of sins, not just liberation, not just eternal life. He is right about everything. That's what the Holy One does. Yeah, we, we use the phrase song and dance. When somebody wants to deceive us or distract us and get us looking at another way, they do a song and dance to cover up something. And there's a lot of religious song and dance going on. Amen. But not with Jesus. He is right about every single thing. And we need to rethink our thinking about things and put them through the lens of Jesus Christ. And the other thing is, he does things differently, completely differently. And so we have these two visions of power, the power of idols and the power of the servant. And that's exactly what Pontius Pilate and Jesus debated when he was arrested. They debated power. And Pilate says, you know I have the power to let you go, and I also have the power to kill you. And Jesus says, you have no power except what's already given to you. And so they argue about this power, and, and Pilate declares the power of Caesar, and Jesus demonstrates the power of the kingdom of God. He does things differently. And Peter doesn't always get it. Remember in the garden, when they come, well, first of all, when, when Jesus is talking about his crucifixion, Peter says, oh, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, because Satan's already tempted him with that, with the power. And now they're in the garden, and they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter takes out his sword. And, I, and I, one commentary reads that, that Peter tries to decapitate the, serp, the servant of the high priest. He didn't aim to cut off the ear. He, he's trying to cut off his head. And of course, you move, and instead he gets his ear. And Jesus puts it back on, heals the guy, and he says, this is not how we do things. We don't do it like this. We don't try to accomplish kingdom goals with Caesar methods. We don't do it like this. And then we look at the servant songs and go, he doesn't do it like this. And we're going to see more and more of that in 52 and 53, that he doesn't do it like this. And when Jesus reinstates Peter, what does he say? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. 
Do you realize how enormously powerful it is to feed these sheep? These are the sheep that Isaiah talked about in chapter 40. That I will gather them and hold them next to me. And now he's telling Peter to feed my sheep. This is a way of meekness and lowly heart, lowly at heart. And it is enormously powerful. This is what changes. We can talk about all those philosophers who tell us how to live and how to do things and how to do right and all this, and they're all some very, very smart people, but they don't offer a remedy for the damage that's been done to our souls. And Jesus does. And he says, this is how we do it. And I'm sure the Jews were reading this too, going, what? This is never going to work. This is not going to happen. How do we expect people to hear us? He said, this is how it's done. And when we think of meekness, I'm sure the Jews thought the same way about meekness that we think. Because when we hear the word and we think about meekness, what do we think of? Spineless. This person is spineless. There is no power. There is no strength here. Well, you know, the Bible only tells, calls two people meek. Moses and Jesus. So whatever we think about meekness, if we think it's weak, it's not that. Meekness is not that. If you look into other places where the word is used, it's actually used to describe oxen who are yoked together to pull something. They're, in other words, their strength is, is, is carrying them in the right direction. This is what meekness is. This is a strength that has carried us in the right direction. This is a strength that doesn't need resentment, bitterness, power, argument, uh, um, anger, yelling in the streets that really accomplishes nothing. This is a different kind of power, a power of the Holy Spirit, that nothing is accomplished apart from that. And Jesus is saying, as because he is meek and lowly at heart, he is saying this. He is saying, I will be the first person in history. I will be the first person in history to take all the malice, all the hate, all the evil on myself and not pass it on. I will take it all on myself, all of it, and rob it of its power. And sure enough, he did. He took it all on the cross and was resurrected, defeated the powers three days later. That's what he did. This is how we do it, he says. Martin Luther King said the same thing. You don't drive out darkness with more darkness. You drive it out with light. You don't drive out hate with more hate. You drive it out with love. He kind of got it. None of us get it perfectly. But this is, the, this is the way God says that we are to do this. That we submit ourselves to the direction that God wants to move, His purposes, His direction, and we become stronger because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's how it's done. So how do we become agents of this kind of power? Just trying to apply some things here. I come up with four. The meek, in the face of evil, the meek do good. Simple as that. In the face of evil, the meek do good. Just like the servant, in the face of evil, he takes the, he takes the prisoners out 
He brings light, open the eyes of the blind. Those of us who are sitting in our prisons of darkness, he calls us out into the light. And in the face of evil, we do good. The meek find their delight in God and his in them. I love that phrase that my soul delights. It's like God smiles at the servant. And when we, when we go into God's purposes with meekness and lowly at heart, we find our delight in him. We find pleasure in him. And we make him smile because this is how he is. The meek yoke themselves to the servant himself. We are tied to the servant himself and we wait patiently on him. And we saw that last week in that famous verse, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength and they will mount up with wings like eagles. And you see the eagles waiting there, waiting there, waiting there for that thermal draft to come up to where they can then jump and are upheld by the thermal draft. He says that's how we do it with the Holy Spirit. We yoke ourselves to Jesus because he is meek and lowly at heart and we wait on him. We don't get out in front of him. We yoke ourselves with the servant himself. Um, Psalm 37 is uh, the, the phrase, is the place where Jesus gets, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's almost a word-for-word quote of Psalm 37. And Psalm 37 talks about this, but he uses the, he uses the word to roll onto, to roll whatever our, our commitment, whatever our thing, we roll it onto Yahweh. We, we roll on, whatever comes our way, we just roll it onto his back. We say when something happens to us that we don't like and we want to respond with anger or a reaction, we say, hey, it's water off a duck's back. Well, the psalmist says, roll it onto Yahweh. Roll it onto Yahweh. You're yoked with the servant himself. And finally, the meek give up their rights for the sake of the gospel. We give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. That means we have to retrain ourselves. We have to relearn things. We have to rethink things. We have to learn how to control this jaw and tongue that we have and not control other people. We have to learn to rethink through this. And, we, and our prayer should be, let the world experience the power of the kingdom through us. Let the world experience the power of the kingdom through us. And we do it this way, the kingdom way. Meekness and lowly at heart. I, um, <clears throat> sometimes it's, it's, we see this and we talk about Jesus and we, we see him do this and he is the author and perfecter of our faith and he is our example, he is our teacher. But sometimes it's good to hear and see somebody who's done it on our level. Uh, <clears throat> I know, I've said, I think I've said this story before, my, my sister was kind of offended because he was going to, they're going to put her uh, son into a, uh, a Christian school, and she, they're not really involved in a church or anything. They don't know the lingo, right? And uh, they wanted to know, well, what Christ-like uh, examples does, does he have? And she was great offended like that. It's like that Jesus is beyond imitating, that, that we can't imitate him. They have him in another category. It's almost like she says, well, Jesus cheats because he's God, holy God. But that's not the way it is. But sometimes we see that, that way. We see Christ as just so as unreachable goal that we kind of ignore it. And sometimes it's good to see people actually do that on our, on our level, other human beings like us who do that, and they do do it. They do do it. There is examples of that. 
How many people know the name Ruby Bridges? A few of us. Ruby Bridges, um, she was a first grader. Uh, in 1954, in the, in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court decided that all schools needed to be integrated, desegregated. And that happened in the country, except my part of the country, the South. It didn't happen. Finally, in 1960, they commanded, demanded that the schools be integrated. And so they sent down FBI agents and other things to integrate the schools. And in New Orleans, four Four elementary school students integrated white schools. Black students integrated white schools. Three in one school, and then one little girl in the William T. France School in New Orleans. There is a, a, a medical doctor. There was a medical doctor named Robert Coles, and a sociologist who taught at Harvard. He wrote a wonderful uh, article in The Atlantic many years ago about this and uh, about his perspective. And he, studies, uh, he studied um, stress in children. And he mainly studied the stress in children in Boston and the suburbs, and he worked with those families and saw how they were working together and how the stress happened. And then he heard about this, this thing going on in the South, and he thought, boy, if there's any children under stress, it would be them. So he went down to New Orleans to kind of check this out, and he went to the school. He went to the William T. France uh, Elementary School, and uh, when he got there, he went to the school, and he got there, and there was this whole crowd of people outside. And some were having things to throw, some were holding signs, but they were all yelling and screaming and, uh, and just, you know, talking about uh, killing people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes, and then um, one girl walked out, Ruby Bridges, first grade. You've probably seen the photo. Photo. That's her. And uh, he said, what's going on? She's the only one coming out. And they said, well, everybody else boycotted the school. She was the only student who went to school. <laughs> and there was only one teacher who agreed to teach her. The rest of the teachers boycotted the school. So one little girl and one teacher. And he walked out. He, and, and Robert Cole says, ah, this is my specimen. This is the one I can study. I can study this person on childhood stress. So he goes and finds the parents, Mr. and Mrs. Bridges, and starts asking them questions. How is she eating? Go, well, she's eating fine. How's she sleeping? Sleeps like a log. And he goes, he's saying, maybe they're not able to, they're probably uneducated, they're probably not able to recognize symptoms of childhood stress. And so, he says, probably she doesn't recognize symptoms of childhood stress either, and so maybe I need to tell her. <laughs> so he goes and, and he talks to the teacher, and, uh, and the teacher says, yeah, you might notice that when she comes in and when she goes into school and she comes out, she actually talks to the people there in front of the school. And he goes, that's interesting. So he gets an interview with Ruby, and uh, he asked her about that. He says, what do, you, um, what do you say to those people that are yelling at you, that are yelling bad words and, you know, and, and wanting, to, wanting to hurt you? What do you tell them? Why are you speaking to them? He goes, oh, she says, oh, I'm not speaking to them. I'm praying for them. Amen. 
And he says, you're praying for them. And he kind of let it go, but then he decided to revisit it a few days later. And he says, is this a good thing that you were praying for them? And he asked the parents, do you think it's good for her to be praying for these people who are so cruel to her? And he started asking her, and I'm just going to read what he writes in his article. He says, once a couple of weeks after the first time I mentioned it, I asked Ruby again about this praying. Ruby, I said, I'm still puzzled about this praying. Why do you think you should be the one to pray for such people, given that what they do to you every day, five days a week? Well, it should be me, she says. Well, why you? She says, well, because if you're going through what other people do to you, you're the one who's supposed to be praying for them. And then she quoted to me what she heard in church. The minister said, Jesus went through a lot of trouble, and he said about the people causing all that trouble, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. So I pray, please, God, try to forgive these people because even if they say bad things, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them like the bad things a long time ago when those people said those mean things about you and said bad words. My mom says that they'll get tired after a while and they'll stop coming and they'll end up staying home. And the minister came to our house and he said the same thing. He said, don't worry, and so I don't. The minister said, God is watching and he won't forget because he never does. The minister says that I forgive the people and smile and pray for them. God will keep a good eye on everything. And then Coles writes this. He says, now little Ruby was saying this in the 1960s about the people screaming at her in the streets of New Orleans. How is someone like me supposed to account for that sociologically or any other way? Amen. There is no other way. Ruby Bridges, you inherited the kingdom of heaven. I think if I could sum up in one purpose of why I want to share these servant songs with you is to build up your confidence in the Holy One of God. That nobody does things like He does them. He is the living, breathing will of God before our eyes. I'm going to ask the worship team if you guys come on up.